is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst and author Nathan Schwartz-Salant. He has a PhD in engineering science from the University of California, Berkeley, and a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the C.G. Jung Institute, Zurich. He has been practicing as a Jungian analyst for almost 50 years and currently resides in Blue Hill, Maine. His first book, Narcissism and Character Transformation, The Psychology of Narcissistic Character Disorders, published by Inner City Books in 1982, is a classic in the Jungian field. He is the author of The Mystery of Human Relationship, Alchemy and the Transformation of the Self, The Borderline Personality, Vision and Healing, and The Black Nightgown, The Fusional Complex and the Unlived Life. He is also the editor of the book Jung on Alchemy. Dr. Schwartz-Salant co-founded, along with fellow Jungian analyst Murray Stein, Chiron Publications, and has co-edited several volumes in their Chiron Clinical Series. Recently, he contributed the chapter Healthy Presidential Narcissism, Is That Possible?, for the popular book A Clear and Present Danger, Narcissism in the Era of Donald Trump, that came out during the 2016 presidential campaign. His latest book, published in April, is The Order-Disorder Paradox, Understanding the Hidden Side of Change in Self and Society, and is the subject of our talk. This interview was recorded on Thursday, June 29th, 2017, through the magic of Skype. Dr. schwartz you wound up at the Jung Institute in Zurich, but this was after you had received a PhD from Berkeley. And I have a science background as well, and so I'm quite interested in that and in how and why it led you to Jung, or, or maybe it didn't. No, it, it and frankly, it didn't. It didn't lead me to Jung at all. I didn't know who Jung was at the time. In fact, if you asked me, I would have said he was Chinese. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I had a uh, a long life in science. I mean, long life, not that many years, but it was my entire focus. I eventually wound up finishing all my requirements for my doctorate at Berkeley. And then the bottom fell out. I realized I did not want the degree. I was uh, actually at my apartment in Berkeley, and I think I talk about this in the, my book, The Order Disorder Paradox. I tell the story that I was uh, sort of just lying on my sofa, you know, really not knowing what I was going to do, feeling very, very um, <clears throat> down. Uh, because I didn't want to go and teach and I didn't want to go into industry. So I had quested after this degree with a, with a blind kind of compulsion, a drivenness, and uh, now it was about to happen. It was only much later that I realized that actually I had been projecting uh, the self onto science, and that was my really quest, but I knew nothing about that at the time. And... Uh, I was in my home in Berkeley when I heard a interview lecture by a man named Timothy Leary, who I never heard before. And he 
was talking about this wonder drug, LSD. And the next day, a friend of mine, by chance, as it were, appeared in my apartment, and he had some of this drug that he had just brought back from New York. And I took 100 micrograms and went alone into the forest in Big Sur and had a life-transforming vision. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me stop you there. So first of all, uh, I love Timothy Leary. I actually got to see him speak when uh, he came to Cleveland. Oh, how nice. And yeah, he was on tour with Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah. So you you knew what LSD was. You knew. No, no, no. No, when you took it, when you took it, you said you wandered into the forest alone with it. Did you realize what you were doing? No. Okay. I thought I I was just going to explore my mind. Ah. I was at a dead end. Everything, as far as I was concerned, and I believe this is the only reason one should take hallucinogens like that, is if you're ready to let everything die. Mm. Uh, I was ready to let that everything die. And I and the way he described that people had transformed through it and whatnot, I didn't know half of what he was saying, but something made a lot of sense to me, and I just took it and went in the forest alone. And then what happened? All hell broke loose. I um, I was sitting there and I was writing notes of my experience Mm -hmm. and I had this pad with notes on it and I reached down and I picked up and tasted a leaf and I wrote an old fallen leaf has an interesting taste and I waited and I was at a pool and then I started to feel the edges of like I said the edges of space are rolling gently. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at the pool and I said, everything will come to this pool. And then the vision struck. I had a transcendent vision of light. The Unio Mystica, my soul started to go out to the light. And at a certain point, I pulled back. I I had a reaction of fear that I would just get swallowed in it. I pulled back. And when I pulled back and I just was sitting there, then tremendous chaos emerged. Hmm. I felt the trees engulfing me and and attacking. And then it went into a rhythm. There was the enormous attacking energy, and then the light would return. And then the energy, and then the light. The chaotic energy was very high-level panic. I had never known anything like it before in my life. Mm -hmm. And when I could just take no more, it was like the light returned and and the the beauty of the light. That was the main focus of it. It was infinite, beautiful, but I had never heard anything like this before. I was a a kid totally involved in science. I didn't know anything about it. Light, mysticism, psyche, I would have thought that was all nonsense. Everything in me was devoted to rational pursuit. But it happened. And it was, I remember writing down, it's impossible. Nothing can be that beautiful. But that oscillation started. 
And then eventually I, I got up and I was very chaotic. I tried to find my way back to my cabin. Uh, the people who um, owned the place somehow were informed of some madman wandering around. And they took me into their home and let me just sit there. And they had dinner and I could calm down because I felt a, an object that was just okay with me. And a lot happened after that. You don't need to know all that unless you want to make this interview about that. But the upshot was that light eventually incarnated more and more into an inner self. But before that happened, I knew it was like a verition, like a truth, that I would leave science. Mm -hmm. I realized that I could do science, but I really didn't feel I was that good at it. And I knew for sure I would be leaving. After a, a variety of uh, things of talking to people, especially a girl I was very close to, I knew I would finish my doctorate. So I did go back, did my dissertation, got the doctorate. But after that, I left science and began traveling. And I didn't know where I would end up. Um, but what did happen in the two years before the vision and my finishing the doctorate was I discovered that I had a knack for relating to people, which was far superior to anything I had in science. Mm -hmm. I also found an easy facility with astrology, with Kabbalah, everything that I had no connection to before. And so the time came after I got my doctorate, I sold everything and just started traveling. I first landed in Scandinavia. I wandered to England and met people there, and I began to realize that I uh, really wanted to deal more with people, that I really had a capacity of getting deeply into their unconscious and having an effect. I think a, a number of people I knew, friends of mine, went into Jungian analysis after that vision because of the effect. It's like, you know, in alchemy, we say the stone multiplies. Mm -hmm. There was a multiplying effect from the vision with a few people at least. Mm -hmm. In any case, I started traveling around the world, came to London. I was actually on my way to our ashram. I thought I should go to India. And I had the ashram in mind when I started to connect more with people and realize, no, I think what I want to do is learn psychology. So I called the uh, psychological institutes in London. They'd have nothing to do with me because I didn't have a degree in psychology. Mm -hmm. And then I remembered Jung was in Zurich. And I didn't know who he was. I'd never heard of him. The, the, the friend of mine who I went to, this, went to, it was in Big Sur that this vision happened, but I went to Big Sur with, I, I left and did it alone, but he was accompanying me up to that point. He once mentioned, he was a, he was a philosopher and he mentioned Jung once. I just remembered the name and that Jung was in Zurich. As I said, I honestly thought he was Chinese at the time. Mm -hmm. So I decided, okay, I'll go to Zurich and see if they'll train me. Well, I went to the airport to get a ticket. I looked at the person 
the attendant and I said, I want to take it to Munich. He looked at me and he said, you mean Zurich, don't you? Mm. So it was kind of meant. And I went to Zurich and I met Jim Hillman and realized that just with my doctorate, I could train there. I went back to America, worked in the aircraft industry to make enough money to start with. And after six months, I went back to Zurich and started training. And how long were you there? Four years. And you decided to come back to the United States? Yes, I trained there with Jim Hellman and von Franz. And when I finished, it, uh, I, w I got married there. And the plan was that we'd come back to America. And that was sort of what we just did. I, I didn't have an impulse to stay in Zurich at the time, no. When you came to the United States, where did you wind up? I wound up in New York City and Connecticut. Uh, her family was from Connecticut, so we lived there, and I also had an office and practiced in New York. So when you were training, how did your experience with the light affect your your process there? It was something that stayed with you, obviously. <laughs> yes, it guided everything mm -hmm. um, for decades. I found out that no one there knew about it. The analysts I met did not know that experience. Mm -hmm. When I read Jung, I got to realize he did not either. The experience of the light or of yeah, dropping acid? The transcendent light. No, nothing about acid. The transcendent light. Mm -hmm. And when you say light, do you mean that it encompassed everything or was it a figure of light? It was, it was the, it's what's meant by the white light in mysticism. Mm -hmm. It's what's meant by the unknowable light. It's something that I saw outside me that was getting larger and larger and more beautiful. And my soul started to move out towards it. It's what's meant by the beatific vision in mysticism. Does that help you? Well, I'm just curious, did, did it have form? Or was it like a bright light filling a room? It wasn't a light filling a room. It had, it had form, but the form was infinite. I'm just wondering if it had sort of boundaries to it. Um, like a ball or a blob or a... No, no, no. The, the boundaries were, there was a sense of space that was expanding. Mm -hmm. So there were boundaries, but the boundaries were ever expanding. Mm -hmm. And then it went away. No, it, it, I went away from it. Mm. I pulled myself away from it. Mm -hmm. And did you ever see it again? I never saw it in that intensity again. Mm -hmm. I, I remembered it. Mm -hmm. I can still remember it. I can recollect it, but not in that intensity. And so how did it affect you as far as, are you saying that your capacity to relate to people came after that? Exactly. Yeah. So how can you explain that? Well, I think what happened is the self got enlivened in me. And I began to have an awareness of, vi of vision through the self. Would you just yeah. define for us what the self is? Oh, yes. Yeah. See, they, 
the self exists on several levels, the transcendent level, which is what I knew in that vision, and a more indwelling or imminent level, uh, like uh, something closer to everything Jung means by the self. The imminent self is a ineffable quality that is felt as a guide, mm -hmm. is felt as a ongoing presence. Like having an awareness of the self is like, you know, it's like having a, an ongoing awareness of the compensatory function of psyche where like a dream might come and put the ego on a better course in an, in an ongoing way. When the self is alive, it orients everything in an ongoing way. One's insight, one's ten, tension to certain details to people. There's an ongoing like feedback loop going on. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, you know, the fairy tale where the hero gets to a crossroads where he doesn't know which way to go, and he throws a feather in the air and follows where it goes. Well, the self yields that kind of mysterious guidance, a sense of a complete otherness within that is of the same substance as that large light, but different in scale. So you didn't know really anything about Jung's concept of the self when you had the experience with the light. And then you entered the training program and read Jung. And then when you read what he'd written about the self, did you say, well, this sort of sounds like the light experience I had? This sounds like the way the light incarnated into me. Mm -hmm. This sounds like the embodiment of the light. This is what he's talking about. This is Philemon. This is the self. In modern days, this is the force in, you know, in Star Wars. This is what uh, Emerson meant by, you know, <clears throat> you know, his genius. Uh, this is the, uh, this is the, the, the thing of a thousand names that you find throughout all of mythology, all of culture as the guide. So yes, yes, that's what Jung was talking about. Yes. Mm -hmm. You were 28 years old when you began training to become an analyst. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That That's quite young. Uh, I myself entered analysis when I was very young. Were you the youngest in your class at 28? That's so young. Um. Yes, I was the youngest. There were other people that were just a year or two older than me, one or two maybe. I, I ask that because I, I've often heard Jung's psychology described as the psychology of midlife. And I've read in several places that people tend to enter analysis when they reach midlife. And that wasn't the case with me. Um and so because you were in the training program, you had to be in analysis yourself. Right. And so what was that like for you? You were relatively young and you were being analyzed. Right. Um, well, uh, it was not analysis, not, not as I know analysis to be now. You know, von Franz said that Jungian psychology is not psychotherapy, that it's a wisdom tradition. 
My experience in Zurich was marvelous. I learned an enormous amount about the psyche. I don't think I learned a great deal about myself. Um, but I did learn a great deal about the psyche, uh, both from Jim Hellman and from von Franz. And uh, so that was my experience in Zurich. My impression is things have changed a lot since then, and there is a lot of serious insight psychotherapy work. But what I took back in terms of psychotherapy were, you know, incredible dream interpretations from von Franz, which still live with me today. Mm -hmm. So I learned, it's not that I didn't learn about, about my mother complex, about this, about that, but um, very different from the way I practice now. My whole professional career has been about bringing young or into here and now work in the here and now with people. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. The archetypes create fields. And the question for me became discovering how that field operates between people. Now, it's important to understand that all of this for me was not an intellectual pursuit. This is where the self guided me to be. Mm -hmm. It guided me to be with people and to become aware of the subtle body, to become aware of this neither physical nor material existence that in fact it, it did have a kind of location, non-location in the space between people. So I became very committed to that aspect of Jung, which explored the subtle body, and that's alchemy. Mm -hmm. Alchemy is all about the subtle body. And so I've you know, written books on alchemy. I've basically moved my psychological practice towards the interactive field with people, as I called it, and to understanding this level of the union between people. But all along, and going way back to Switzerland and to the vision I had, is my work that I call the order-disorder paradox. Yes. Now, <clears throat> I think... It's immensely important, I think, to realize that there is an archetypal underpinning to reality, that nobody but Jung really talks about it. And one form of an archetypal reality that I bring to bear is an awareness of the order-disorder paradox. Creating order results in disorder. My thesis was about this. This My last book was about this. Now, from a Jungian perspective, what I'm seeing nowadays in the present world we live in, in this Trump phenomenon, is the archetypal motif of the uninvited guest. Mm -hmm. This is vital. Because obviously our culture, which is so ruled by rationality, has come to a dead end. 
And what's happening is we're seeing elements of a new order trying to come into being. A new order. A new order has got has not incarnated yet. Mm-hmm. We're waiting for a new order. What we have instead is a lot of chaos. The archetypal uninvited guest is a phenomenon that comes into existence and doubles. There's two aspects to it, an ordering aspect and a disordering aspect now. Now, I didn't know about that archetypal background when I was first doing my work on the order disorder paradox, but I put it to you that that is the background of how order and disorder are manifesting in the world today. And the world is typically reacting as it should not, like when the the uninvited guest comes into a person's life, he usually rejects them and then suffers terribly. What's happening is we're reaching a point where we have to see the mystery in chaos, the mystery in the chaos that we create and we discover and realize how it's connected to a new order that's trying to emerge. So Trump is the uninvited guest in our culture, at least the culture on the coasts, for example. It's dreadful to diagnose him. One can easily see one could see it from here to doomsday as narcissistic character. It's blatant, but it's foolish because he's really like the left foot of God. As Jung said, when the self comes into the psyche, he puts his left foot forward. Yeah, I've heard you say that a few times. Tell us exactly what that means. That means that when extreme experiences of chaos happen, they're a precursor often of a new order that hasn't come into existence Mm -hmm. yet. And knowing that new order is there, having had the experience of the large order that can follow the chaos is really what the archetypal times we are in demands. Everybody, I think, to look at their lives, to look at the chaos in their lives, to look at the darkness in their lives that followed some experiences of union they may have had, to look at the way the darkness comes into their life after they have a new thought, new idea, after an erotic relationship, to look at the chaos and begin to see its mystery. That's what these times are about. There's a mystery in what's happening in politics today. That's the last thing that's ever thought about. So you're saying that he came along, he is the uninvited guest. Did Mm. he come along because of us as a collective? Did we produce produce this situation? Right. He came along at this time because the rational method of the elite, the power drive of you know, that had been running our cultures for so long was going dead. And a new form has to come into existence. You find the same archetypal issue, for example, with ISIS. But it's a catastrophe because 
rather than experiencing what they experience, they impose some idea about a new order that's going to come through Islam and through some new dispensation. And then they try to create the incredible catastrophe of the apocalypse so it can come into existence. Yeah. So you see this perversity of the order-disorder fact in Islam now. But what Jung showed in his incredible alchemical studies was how order, like in the Union experience, is followed by extreme chaos in the Negredo. Individuals, I believe, were called upon to see this present experience we're in and all the chaos. Look around you. Everything is chaotic. Yeah. But what's trying to emerge? Here's an example. <laughs> the, we can get a hint at, at what's needed, perhaps. If you, if you look at the uh, just, just everyday experience, Look at the New York Times today. Wonderful article on the fact that the tools, the power tools, the tools to corrupt other people's information and computers mm -hmm. that NSA developed have been stolen from NSA. So here the NSA went on with their magnificent rational minds, created these tools, and they got stolen. And now they're out there and they're creating havoc and they don't know what to do about it. And it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. What does that tell you? It tells you that Mercurius is operative. It tells you that the thief is operative. It tells you that something that's not the same as rational thinking is operative. You know, it, it, it's a lot like, you know, when... You had you had times you know, where the uninvited guests came into culture, you know, in the form of Jupiter and Mercury, the great principle of order and the trickster. Mm -hmm. It's not unlike that now. We have a need to desperately begin to look at the world through principles that are other than rational order, like a perspectival thinking in Gebser's work, like Jung synchronistic ideas, like a causality. So unless one opens to those kinds of awareness that comes from that way of perceiving, unless that's added, that mercurious factor is added to our consciousness, and of course that's what people like Wolfgang Pauli insisted upon, unless that's added, naturally, not to say Jung, the precursor of this kind of thinking, unless that's added, where our rational thinking is going to run us into a mess. I mean, people, for example, try to argue, is there any danger in artificial intelligence? Is there any danger in gene splicing? That can never be answered rationally. That can only be answered through another kind of consciousness. So I think that's what these times are hinting at. What other type of consciousness? What do you mean? The consciousness that sees through the self. 
that sees through a larger otherness that is unknowable. The consciousness that knows it doesn't know and waits for something to fall in to tell it what it needs to know. The consciousness that can be aware of a correspondence between inner and outer that is not causal. That kind of consciousness, for example. And it may take many other forms. We don't have it yet. Well, that sounds like synchronicity, inner and outer, right? And being a causal. So I just want to point that out, that's, that synchronicity does not mean coincidence. It means an inner and an outer. It means a meaningful coincidence. It means a coincidence of spirit and matter that's not reducible to statistical understanding. It means that we know, for example, that causality is statistically true. And what Pauli argued was that, yes, it's statistically true. That means there's places where it not, it's not necessarily the guide. And those are the places where the A-causal comes in. So I'm saying that people have been trying to look for what the new order has to be. Mm-hmm. Jung's uh, life's work is devoted to dis- trying to discover what is the new order trying to come into the picture. Why does it have a fourfold structure? What What is it? What form does it have? Why is it that it has to incorporate a dark side of life, like the Antichrist or like Mercurius? That's the beauty of Jungian thought. Yeah. And I'm saying that that is intimated by a Trump-like phenomena. So it was bound to happen. Trump, somebody like Trump or Trump himself was bound to come along it, it could it could have happened it would have, it was bound to happen at some point mm-hmm. there could have been a regression back to more of the same mm-hmm. and i know this might not be popular but clinton could have been the president there could have been more of the same what happened is the culture became split we see this tremendous split in the culture between um those that were really um terribly abused and manipulated by Wall Street and by the ruling elite and those that were not and benefited from it. We see the upper 1% and the tremendous disparity in culture. So what we have now in our collective is a split. You see the splits everywhere. You see it in Congress. You see it in Republican and Democrat. It's very hard to see any union anywhere. Now, When the ruling symbol of a culture, like look at the ruling symbols of our culture. Well, one of one aspect of it was supposed to be Congress. You know, one aspect of it was supposed to be the Supreme Court. You see these ruling images and rather than holding opposites together, they're splitting apart. Now, like in a primitive culture, when that happens, when the opposites split apart, the king dies. That's a time where a dark state comes in, where a negredo comes in, and where there has to be some renewal from somewhere. We're in that kind of time of darkness. I like what you said about holding the opposites closer and closer together. Um, That's something that I dealt with in my own analysis. And would you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, the opposites are 
of course, multifaceted in any number of number of them, good and evil parts of our nature, you know, love and hateful parts of our nature. But a major opposites I believe we're dealing with now is the creation of order and the concomitant creation of disorder. And not to let those split. Suppose you wake up today, tonight, and you wake up with a down mood, a depressed feeling, a chaotic feeling. You must look for where some order preceded it. Something happened, some connection. God knows maybe in this interview, who knows, between you and someone else. But some order happened to as a precursor for that. That's what I mean by the main opposites we have to attend to now. And of course, deeply within us, the opposites of all the darkness of the shadow, everything that get, can get projected onto Trump, our narcissism, our envy, our unrelatedness, our terror of intimacy, our rage, everything that the man is an easy hook for, yeah. that's got to be swallowed and seen within us as a living reality, not as, oh, yes, I have that too, but as something that accompanies us. You see, owning the darkness is absolutely essential for the light to incarnate. Would you give us an example of owning the darkness? Because I just interviewed James Hollis back in May, and... Um, the main focus for me was his book on the shadow and I've been tweeting about it ever since. And it seems to get the most reaction out of people. So yeah. owning the darkness you just said is essential for yeah. the light to come in. So would right. you talk a little bit about how we can do that, how we can own our darkness? Right. Well, first and foremost, you don't do it alone. You need another person to see it. Yeah. Um, it's it's totally easy to be tricked by it because the shadow side within us is a trickster. But it means, for example, being able to see through often the injury we create in a relationship, through the ways we have hurt people, through the ways we have run our life through power means, it means to be able to eventually see all those qualities as a living side of us that's still in us. It doesn't go away. But we have to be able to wrestle with it, to like have issues in life where it wants to come up and run the show. Its power wants to come up to crush somebody who we don't trust. Mm -hmm. We have to learn to be able to consult it, to be aware of it, make friends with it, and not necessarily act it out. You know, the, the, the great mythical story of this is when, uh, when in the Gilgamesh epic, where Gilgamesh wrestles with Enkidu, the, his great shadow, the hairy man, and he subdues him. And it's only after they become friends that, Enki, that Gilgamesh can go on, a, on his journey. Unless we own this within us, unless I am Trump in every way he is, but I don't act it out. Mm -hmm. unless that comes to pass 
And unless I also don't realize that in that Trump quality, and I don't mean to just scapegoat him, it's in this dark shadow quality, God knows whatever he represents is is right through the American power collective. Yeah. You know, Wall Street everywhere. Unless I own that within me, I will not be able to be in contact with the instincts it often has. I'll be too split into some spirit life. It, if I don't wrestle with it, I will tend to act it out. Mm-hmm. I will have impulses that I'll act out. But if I wrestle with those impulses, they can inform me. They can create and in, in, in help me embody my own nature on deep instinctual levels. That's the shadow. The shadow always is hard, difficult. It's it's a tremendous ethical necessity now mm-hmm. to own that darkness in us. And that's a long path. That's a long struggle. I mean, you can see that you can see how it doesn't happen. You can see what happens to every guru who comes to America and how they fall flat on their face in by acting out the shadow. They don't integrate it. Jung was about integrating the shadow. Tell me, how don't they integrate it? Could you give me an example? Oh, sure. They get inflated and they begin to think that their energies are so powerful and beyond all recall that they have a right to act it out with anybody. So they go into a massive campaign of acting out with their disciples. They act out in terms of money abuse of money with their people, they act out sexually, they act out in terms of, you know, demands to be, you know, seen as so powerful, all that happens, and it always leads to chaos and disaster. They get inflated. They don't see the shadow. It's the same thing that happens when people, so many people, go into extremely, um, extremely arduous and and very um, serious Zen practices. And they develop that practice with wonderful virtue, really admirable. And they sit every day and they go to Sashin and they spend months of their life on retreat. And they get to that state where they look at that world and they can feel the beauty of that mindless, no mind coming through them. And as soon as they get in a relationship, it goes to hell. Yeah. Because there's no shadow integration. That's what really drew me to Jung, because I didn't hear anybody else talk about that. You won't. The great mystics talk about it. I mean, Rumi talks about it. Uh, The mystics knew that dark side had to be dealt with. I mean, St. John of the Cross knew it. But in modern psychological life, I don't know anyone who deals with it but Jung. Right. And um, that's why I say Jung is not for everybody, because when I talk about this with some people, they get very turned off and want to tell me how wrong I am and how wrong he is. Okay, I'd be I'd want to hear those people and be interested in them. I'd want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear where they're right. I don't want to hear where they're wrong. I want to hear where they're right. I want to hear where they can tell me something that's right. I want to hear every one of them. What do you mean by that? Well, suppose they tell you their criticism of what about the shadow and about this view of evil and all that. 
I want to know what they mean. I don't. I don't want to think of them as just. It's not right for them. They, they I, tell I me that 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 they don't have that in them. That they don't have that capacity. I I know, and I've always known I had that in me. And, and the that they don't have. They don't have what capacity? The capacity for evil, for evil acts, for evil thoughts, for you know horrible, yeah. awful things. I, I would want to say that's wonderful. God bless you. If, that, <laughs> if that's how your life is going to be, it's wonderful. That's not been my story. Is it possible that that is their story? Of course. Of course. You could take someone who lives the life of the poor Eternus, someone who's the eternal adolescent, someone who lives flying high in the spirit all the time and then dies in a car crash at age 35. Yeah. They've never touched the shadow. So what is the danger if we never touch the shadow? We never bring the spirit into reality, into relatedness, into our ethical lives. I have to say that what I've been experiencing, I spent a lot of time online. Uh, I always have. I've been on Twitter for seven, over seven years now. And what I'm seeing now as far as the anger hatred, the sarcasm, all directed toward politicians. Yes. I, I'm appalled every day at what I'm seeing. Of course. these are the, When a person owns their shadow, they're never judgmental. What you're seeing is an appalling level, low level of the collective consciousness that's still dealing with the shadow completely in projection. It's awful. It's deadly. Yeah, I am, I'm surprised by it every day, and I'm surprised to see it coming from the people that I see it coming from. Why are you so surprised, Laura? I thought that there was greater insight um, than this, that, mm. that people were a little bit more psychologically, I don't know, in tune, sophisticated. I, I think that's a wonderful part of you that that wants to believe that. I, w I would say take that attitude you have, excuse me for coming approaching that what you said that way, that people are, people are wonderful. People have the capacity. Yes, they do. But they're not living it. It's a potential. But like Aristotelian potential, there has an actuality to it. No, never give up on that belief. But it's not incarnating. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Uh, I need to switch gears with you a little bit here um, because I want to cover, before we run out of time, you've written a lot about character disorders, personality disorders. Um, no. Now, Jung did not look at personality disorders per se, did he? No. Jung was not a psychotherapist in the sense of someone who's going to look at personality disorders. You know, Jung was looking at the substructure of all those disorders. You know, Jung is a like a nuclear physicist. When I was in Switzerland and I learned what I learned about Jung, uh, the best analogy I have is like to, a, to something a professor uh, I once had in mathematics told me, he's a wonderful uh, Japanese man, as I recall, and he said that he he had he was a pure mathematician, and he spent 20 years of his life 
becoming an applied mathematician. It took him that long. Mm. Well, in Zurich, the kind of training I had, which I adore, uh, was more like the pure mathematics. Uh, and it's taken, it took me many decades to try to bring it into here and now reality. And that's why you see these books I've written on narcissism, on borderline personalities, etc. But I always write them from a point of view <clears throat> that has Jung's the po point in it about the archetype, about the numinosum. In my book on the borderline personality, I made it a special point that the borderline personality is someone often knows the transcendent self, but doesn't have an indwelling imminent self. So the self within them is dead. But they have this other kind of vision. Mm -hmm that comes from transcendence. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my whole book about that, about how that vision in them has to be seen in order to help enliven the self within them. And that is something that an analyst can do. Absolutely. Can they do it on their own? Never. Right. Okay. I just asked that because uh, somebody wrote to me this week and asked me what book they could read written by a Jungian analyst um, so that they could get, quote, self-help from it. And I pointed out that the analyst is crucial in this process. Well, read, read, let them read memories, dreams, and reflections. That, can, that turns a lot of people on to knowing they need help. I don't think it has to <laughs> right. be with, I don't think it has to be with an analyst. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of analysts going people going to analysis is a dead end. I mean, it has to be with a person okay. that they can relate to. Maybe it's an analyst. I did want to ask you about looking at streaks of madness in otherwise sane people. What do you mean sure. by that? Well, I mean that um, everybody has an area of madness within them. Now, most people don't know it, of course. An area of madness is an area in which we lose boundaries, in which we become inflated, mm -hmm. in which we act out our impulses, in which we become driven and act out our sexual impulses, act out our mental thoughts as though they are divine. This lives in us. And this kind of madness is what comes to pass you know, in, say, a schizophrenic episode. But it doesn't have to lead to any overt psychosis. But the fact is that we all have areas of madness in which these features of boundarylessness, lack of control, etc., mm -hmm. tremendous acting out exist. Now, the, the key is that we become aware of how these areas limit us. You know, Lacan famously said that a person is only mad if he doesn't know his limits as defined by his madness. If I don't know that I have mad qualities that limit me, then I will be mad. Okay. If I don't guide my life in ways that are that are bounded, limited by my madness, I will behave in mad ways and injure people and injure myself. That's what I mean. But it's about accepting limitation. I know somebody who refuses to go into the stock market 
because he knows he's got the shadow side, he'll dot mad side that'll get swept away. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't make the 18% interest last year. It's accepting our real limitation that goes with the wisdom of knowing we have a mad part. Trump's so-called madness is all over the place. He's out of control. So what can we do going forward? What would you like to leave us with? Well, what we do is we form communities, we form relationships in which we learn to listen to other people. We learn to see our darkness. We live lives based on not knowing. We have the courage to know we don't know. And we look for relationships that further that, that help see us in our unconsciousness. Whether that be a marriage, whether that be a friendship, whether that be some groups we're looking for. But we continue to open to the uninvited guest. We welcome him in. We don't reject him. Thank you, Dr. Schwartzlant. Thank you very much. I appreciate this. I'd like to again thank my guest, Dr. Nathan Schwartz-Salant, for his time today. Please visit the website, speakingofjung.com, for more information on everything he discussed. On the website, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So with special thanks to Murray Stein, my deepest gratitude to Daryl Sharp and Liz Jefferson of Inner City Books, and to my partner in crime, Michael Deacon of End of Days, the Michael Deacon Program. This is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>